you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the California Underground. Today, I have Jason with me from the China Unravel podcast. He is a, I would call him an expert, definitely much more than I'm an expert uh, in terms of what's going on with China. Um, and he reached out to me to talk about what is going on with China and California specifically. And I thought that was a really interesting topic because I don't really know too much about what China is doing. I know some things that we're going to talk about. Um, but mostly I just want to hear his point of view and we can have this conversation. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions for Jason, just throw them up in the chat window and we'll get to them later in the show. Uh, but we'll start off, Jason, go ahead, introduce yourself, tell us about your podcast and, uh, anything else you want to introduce to start off the show. Great. Thanks, Phil. Yeah. So my name is Jason Sheftel and I have a podcast, China Unraveled podcast. And the podcast is really pulled from a book that I've been writing for about two, two and a half years. And should hopefully come out in in the at the end of by the end of the year. And it's pulling from, I don't know, 15, about 15 years of interest and work and time spent in China. So I have a sort of a long history with that. And I'm also I'm from California and lived here. You know, I went to school here for a while and I'm back now. I'm actually in L.A. And there's so much going on with what's happening in the Chinese economy and where, where California is going. And it relates to just a lot of our politics, a lot of the big issues about how does housing affordability and different just all, all these issues so it thought it'd be really cool to come on and just you know see where see how much context and useful knowledge i can give people about what to expect and how to interpret some of what's been going on uh, specifically in a lot of the real estate over the last 10 years or so so mm -hmm. that's where it comes from great so I, I guess we could just start off and uh, we'll kind of we'll start with broad and work backwards if that's a good way to do it on a scale of one to 10, how involved in California is China in terms of, let's just say, the economy? Well, I'd say the, the, from the, the broadest way to look at it is that basically since 2008 and 2009, we had, the financial, we had the financial crisis and China didn't get hit as hard as the United States and, and Europe. So this is going back 12, 13 years. But what it did is it really supercharged the amount of credit that it was producing in its economy. So it was pumping out something like an Obama stimulus package about every month for a long time, for, for many years. And when it got towards 2012, 2011, 2012, 2013, China, this was when China as, as a state policy and as corporate policy really started to tell companies, hey, China's on the world stage, China's moving out, it's going to start investing all over the world. And you just saw all the excess capital, all the excess credit and all the, the supercharged uh, companies that had all this liquidity, they were just, and individuals, they were just spewing their money all across the world. And California got a lot of it. So uh, there's just... Yeah, it just got so much of the money. So a lot of the money came through real estate investment. And California at the time, you know, by 2013, 2014, 2015, something like 35% of all residential, foreign residential real estate investment was coming into California. And we just saw this everywhere. The way it worked is that these Chinese companies were really looking for, the government was looking for state influence. So it was putting money into Africa. Everybody's heard about the, the Belt and Road. All these things were kind of sort of spinning up around this time. And a lot mm -hmm. of the national champions were sort of supposed to spread their wings and you know get enter all these new markets and it was going to be like a grand a grand opening for you know China on the world stage America had just been sort of slapped by a big financial uh, you know recession and you know China was going to emerge and what we actually saw is it was really similar to Japan in the late 1980s so at that time 
Japan was doing a similar thing. It was the, 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 t- the top of a, a major credit super cycle. And Japan went and bought things like Columbia Pictures. Sony bought Columbia Pictures. And another company bought Rockefeller Center in New York. And well, that's kind of what we saw with China too. In 2015, this company called Anbang Insurance built, uh, bought the Waldorf Astoria in New York for $2 billion, which is crazy price. And you started to see all this sort of stuff happen. And California, like the way it works is that there's only something like 4% of real estate transactions, you know, of existing homes or existing uh, properties in the US are foreign owned. But what happened is that Chinese investors and Chinese individuals and Chinese companies focused on all of these gateway cities into the United States. So they focused on Miami and New York and San Francisco and Seattle and as well as Vancouver and, you know, obviously in in, uh, Canada and then in a lot in in Los Angeles and Southern California as well. And this is what happened is that even though there's only 4% of the market is these, um, you know, are these transactions, are these foreign purchases, it has a huge outsized effect in those markets. And so you just got all this money flooding in, in particular to West LA and Orange County and downtown and obviously San Francisco and the peninsula there. And it just, it, it was really part of the, this broader sort of upswing we saw in the real estate market uh, during this time, especially in these sort of major coastal urban areas. And it's been a, it's been a really major thing. So that's like at the broadest level, that's kind of where to start is this, this super cycle was happening within the United States. And then it was just supercharged by all this credit and money that was flowing in from China. And that's kind of the, the, the beginning of the story. And that's, that's, that's really what happened. So it was just an, a really, really exciting place for ch- the Chinese people to, I mean, Chinese investors, companies, and individuals to put money. And a lot of them were actually trying to put money here to escape basically expropriation, the fear of expropriation, because they know mm-hmm. we saw, I'll, I'll get to this in a, a little later, but they, they're fearful about what's happening in the Chinese economy. And they're trying to get as much money out as possible. So it's really just hot money hot, scared money that's like flowing around the world and going to places with really good property laws, property systems where you can have a freehold, you know, you can own a freehold property and it can't be taken by the by a foreign government, unlike, you know, something in China. And so you just saw even more, there was even more pressure to put it into these these markets and they knew it would be good. And then obviously people are more interested. If you're Chinese, you're more interested in buying something in Orange County than in St. Louis because you'll if you're a Chinese billionaire, you're probably more accepted. There's more of a community. It just sort of naturally made a lot of sense. And it's sort of on that Pacific Rim and embedded in a lot of different sort of networks. So Vancouver in particular has a really strong Chinese community, as does Southern California and San Francisco. And that's a really big part of sort of where where we got to around 2015. So uh, you mentioned that a lot of Chinese investors are really just trying to get their money out of China. And I remember reading an article about how they had changed the law in China uh, that they were dumping a lot of money into real estate. And then was it, you're, you probably know that China then said, okay, you can't do that anymore. There's a cap on how much you can do. And this affected construction here in California because there were projects that were being built in California in downtown areas that were then all of a sudden, well, there's no more money because they put a law on it in China. If, if I'm right, or you can, you can elaborate on that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So basically this whole, this whole splurge, like China, like go out into the world, go start, you know, taking over, start investing, start winding up all sorts of businesses all around the world. That started to end in 2015. Basically what happened is uh, in July, there's a uh, stock bubble crashed, uh, the, you know, the, the Shanghai stock market crashed. And then the next month in August of 2015, the Chinese yen collapsed by 4% in two days. And this basically the Chinese government, the 
the, the People's Bank of China had to spend over a trillion dollars of their reserves over the next around two years to fight a major currency problems. And this sent a lot of things to the Chinese, the Communist Party. They said, okay, it's time for capital controls. <laughs> That's the first thing. And so what you said is exactly right. They put a lot, I believe it's a billion dollars. You can't have any more of these, you know, billion dollar plus investments um, in, in, I think it's companies or, well, actually still companies, but definitely in real estate. You can't do it in these just hard assets that aren't gaining technology or know-how or things that you can bring back to the, the mainland, the motherland to improve uh, things over there. And things just started to wind down. And so what happened is that, you know, maybe... I think it was something like 35 billion a year or so in you know Chinese money was coming to the California residential real estate market or even six I think it was 66 and it was just it was huge and that's now cut and it just started to to, to completely fall off the the map. Uh, what we're seeing is we still see sort of like cash payments like they'll, you can get your money out of China you have to you can only take fifty thousand out at a time in U.S. equivalent of U.S. dollars out at a time but people are managing to get their money out of China so. There are many well-known stories of people who are being offered like in cash for some house in Manhattan Beach or something like that uh, by a, you know, a random person. And, you know, you get it. You learn it's a buyer from China. So that's a major mm -hmm. thing. But you're right. This this ended. The Chinese government knew it needed to secure all the money that it could up for its citizens from its citizens to sort of sustain what it has and to sort of prevent serious capital flux. So what we've been seeing in China that year, 2015 and 2016, saw the, the most capital flight any we've ever seen out of any country ever like it was bigger than uh, after the end of the soviet union it was bigger than russia in 2013 and 2014 uh it's it was crazy and so we've been seeing enormous capital flight out of china every year since and it comes out in all these various ways it's it's read as errors in their account you know the various reports and accounts but yeah it's, it's a big deal and china's doing a lot of things to prevent that we're seeing some crypto stuff now but what it did is it just left husks but like what you're talking about in downtown LA, there's a really big project. It was a three building project called, I think it's called Oceanwide Plaza. And it's in the South Park area of downtown right next to the Staples Center in, in LA. And it's a, you know, these are three buildings that are over 40 stories each with a, a large uh, sort of, uh, you know, multi-story multi shopping mall complex at the base, just sort of connecting all of them. It's a full block. And it's, it's a rare sort of building project for that market and for LA. Uh, but they went for it. There was a lot of interest from Asian investors in downtown LA and, and Koreatown because these are areas that are very familiar to the investors in large cities like Hong Kong or Singapore, you know, these large skyscrapers. They figured, hey, downtown LA is such a dump. You know, eventually it's going to become great. So why don't we invest, build a huge tower? It's all going to become beautiful around it. And then, you know, we'll we'll be sitting pretty and we'll profit. So the biggest tower in LA now is actually built originally by, I think it was South Korean Airlines or something, has a, the intercontinental continental hotel in downtown that was part of that boom and it actually was huge it really for downtown la in particular it built so much investment it would pretty much i believe it was the biggest boom town boom time in you know in downtown la construction since the 1920s it's just been crazy uh but not all of it has panned out and so like you said there's all these projects that don't don't work out and that one in particular i think in 2019 this oceanwide plaza had to stop construction and it hasn't found a buyer and it hasn't found any sort of it hasn't found any sort of way to move forward. It has all these mechanics liens. It has all these these major problems uh, with the, the whole project. And it's hard to sell this sort of project because it's new to the LA market. Like you can't just say, hey, you buy one tower. You need it. You have to do all of them. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major problem. In San Francisco, that, that same company is building a two tower complex, but they're sort of separate buildings. And 
it kind of also stopped construction, but it was able to sell one of them. And then, you know, it's going to be it'll be finished in 2022 and it'll be able to sell the other. But in L.A., this this thing could end up a husk on the on the landscape for a while, because a lot of people are looking at, hey, if we're at the top of a real estate cycle, I don't want to be going in and buying this when we're no longer mm. going to have all of these Asian or the sort of East Asian invest investors that are buying it as sort of foreign homes. So if you look at downtown L.A. at night, there's a lot of beautiful finished buildings that have no lights on. And no. well, that's because they're being used as assets. They're being used to store money. They're being used something like 50% of foreign purchases of real estate in the US are just for you know second homes or whatever, or just they're, they're expecting it to appreciate because that's what we saw when everyone started pulling into the res these residential urban real estate markets, the, the prices just went crazy. So suddenly it became a hot asset. So you had like Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern shakes and Russian oligarchs, everybody was buying these. And so it just everyone's like, oh, now it's just a pure asset game. And it was fueling even more investment. So when China pulled back, it just it started to you know spin back a lot of these processes. Yeah. So it, these husks, and I, I keep focusing on downtown LA because in my experience, I've seen these buildings that were built and they're grandiose and mm -hmm. they, they just sit there like you're saying. They'll sit there at night, no lights on or anything like that. San Diego, to a certain extent, most of the buildings I know that they built down here are full and they have people in them but downtown la makes me think that they were going for this boom how does that affect the actual market around it so you have them dumping a whole bunch of money into these projects and trying to revitalize or at least just by happenstance revitalizing the downtown area does that benefit downtown la when they do that or does it actually hurt because now you have this big empty black darkened building that's not doing anything well i think there's there's two things i think there's a sort of a housing affordability question in general so one thing mm. they, they've done some studies and they found from 2012 to 2018 if you looked at the, the zip codes in the united states where there was a lot of sort of chinese foreign purchases the you know they started mm. out at around the same price level and then six years eight years later there was a they were two times pricier they were the, they, they were two times more expensive in these neighborhoods in these sort of hot neighborhoods and they've mm -hmm. also in real estate in general, you get spillover effects. So the nearby neighborhoods also get some of those price increases. So it, it's rising. It, it, it does rise prices. But in something like downtown L.A., I mean, let's be honest, downtown L.A. has serious problems and is in serious need of investment. So from my perspective, and this is just a small point, like from my perspective, if a lot of Korean, Singaporean, Indonesian, uh, Japanese, Chinese investors want to come in and create a real metropolis in downtown L.A. and try and form something that looks more of like a core of a downtown of a major city. I mean, go for it. I, I don't think LA is really mm -hmm. structured spatially to end up with that sort of arrangement of a, of a metropolis. It, it's sort of a, maybe an, an old way of imagining how it will happen, but it has a lot of problems. So it's probably, probably specifically for downtown, I'd say it's net a good thing. And you can, these are mm -hmm. assets that can always be, you know, they'll buy it. So what's happening is that Oceanwide Holdings, which is the Chinese development company that in 2013 started going global and then bought this location and started building this oceanwide plaza in downtown and also the one in San Francisco. It's going to sell that property. It's going to end up selling that property to someone and they're going to buy it and it's going to lose a bunch of money because it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess project with all these loans and stuff, but it'll eventually be a useful asset likely for the for the region. I mean, it is something more like a Vegas property in a lot of ways, just the, the style, the way it's done. Uh, and unfortunately there, there's like the fountain blue and that thing has just been a mess for a long time. So, so you never know, but most likely it'll all be bought up and th these, the real estate market can rejuvenate and sort of cycle, circle these assets around and cycle through them and get reinvestments. So 
overall, for specifically for downtown, it's uh, probably a, a net positive. Uh, and it did, there's a lot of, it's specifically in that area, there's so much development going on. There's, it's near the convention center. So they get a lot of hotel benefits. This is all very much a micro real estate thing that we're talking about. But it, it is, mm-hmm. it has, it is real problems. And it's, it's probably a good thing. But overall, the Chinese investment in a lot of these, um, in these gateway cities has caused problems. And starting in 2011, a lot of countries started to create the equivalent of basically foreign buyer purchasing taxes. Basically, they say, hey, you're from a different country, you have to pay X amount more to purchase a home in our country, purchase a property. And it really spread like wildfire through a lot of countries. So that is something that the US, yeah, the US could, could think about doing. It depends on wh- how, what we value, right? <clears throat> if we value, if we value people, citizens having access to properties and being able to purchase things, it's that, you know, there's one set of policy responses. If you sort of believe in more unfettered global capital flows that mm-hmm. uh, will appreciate the values. I mean, there's certain people want different things. If you own property in California, well, you know, let, let's have it rise as high as possible. That's what they think. If you want to have more properties available, if you want to have them more affordable, then that's sort of a different set of policies. But California has serious problems in how it, in its real estate and housing markets that it's really not just um, Chinese capital, but Chinese capital really did bring a lot of this to light and then sort of add just the cherry on top of <laughs> how, you know, how crazy things can get. So uh, maybe it helps to back up a little bit and because I'm not really familiar with this. And I think a lot of people who are listening is also probably have this question is sure. If China says it's a communist country, oh, right. yeah. how do they have billionaires that are investing so much money into America. And I think that always confuses a lot of people of, well, they're communists, but they have all, uh, there's people who have billions of dollars. Maybe you could lay that out um, for the listeners so that they can kind of put that in their head of, of how this happened. Sure. Um, the best way to think about, so China is communist because it's ruled by the communist party. So, and there's a mm-hmm. communist party. It has, I think, nice 90 million members. And you know, the, the, the government is, there's basically a shadow government that is the party. It staffs all the different government agencies. It staffs also all the companies. And that's sort of the, the organizational structure. But realistically, this is just another instance of a, a general, like an imperial Chinese state. That's really the best way to think about mm-hmm. it. It's cloaked in this ideology, but the nationalists and the original Ch- you know, the Chinese communists in the last century, about, about 100 years ago, it's actually the Communist Party's birthday is July 1st, I believe, or it's coming up in a couple of days. So perfect time to talk about this. But they were really, it was just, a lot of this was just nationalist movements. Um, and the way the way communism, there's a lot to talk about about communism in China, but since 1978, 1979, China has really just been trying to get wealthy and prevent itself from cracking into pieces. And it's done everything possible to mm. prevent that from happening. And that means ditching all sorts of ideology or having hypocritical ideology, that's fine. It's, it's more than willing to do it. And that's what it's done. And th- the real question in terms of ideology and communism, how, how can you have rich capitalists is basically this ruling party wants to stay in power. And if you got rich in China, you have connections to the communist party. So the wealthy class, the political class, all of these are connected and they're, they're, you know, they've been scratching each other's back. So there's a large elite class in China that is trying to preserve all the gains that it had. And it was cloaked in communism because they didn't, it was the communist party that ruled and there would have been a bloody civil war. It almost, it almost did reach a bloody civil war in 19, in the late 1970s. So there's just been deep hypocrisy ever since, but it's been trying to get rich mm-hmm. and not fall, tumble into chaos. 
And that's kind of the, the core way to think about it. I mean, a really good phrase that people use is just state capitalism, where, yeah, it's basically like a, a statist or, uh, place with using mm-hmm. capitalist mechanisms that are all very much state directed in a lot of industries. But the, the Chinese model is, is basically coming to an end in a lot of ways. It's the, the Chinese government knows this. Everybody knows this. It's just, it's going to be a, a real challenge. And I think that, yeah, I, there's definitely a lot to say about, about the Chinese Communist Party and it, all the hypocrisy and all the new slogans it comes and it trots out. But realistically, people should just think of it as a generic, giant, status, you know, state nationalist sort of party that, that happens to be bright red. So it's kind of like, let's just, you know, like a hypothetical, like European country with a parliamentary system where that party just takes over and has power, but that doesn't mean the country necessarily becomes, it does that make any sense? So like, let's say uh, a party that's pro status capitalist takes over power in a country, but the underlying structure of the is still capitalist. It's just the people in charge are a certain party. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I'd say or am that I completely a, getting wrong. No, I mean I think that a lot of best way to think about it is probably just that the communist the communist element is really uh, primarily a varnish. You know, it's okay. primarily a varnish. Um, and the, the, yeah, that, that's the best way to think about it. Like the the Chinese state has always been a you know it's a, trying to be an authoritarian, totalitarian, dictatorial state since forever and that's yeah. the the underlying state structure has been the same for like 2200 years uh mm-hmm. so it, there's a deep history to it uh the 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 you know the communism thing is actually extremely bizarre in a lot of ways but what what china ended up with like the state system it ended up with is very very predictable you know it probably would have ended up mm-hmm. like this even if the nationalists had gained power i mean that's something i'm very big on we always we think oh like you know the u.s lost china you know now it's a whole problem now we're stuck with this thing it's like you know, if Chiang Kai-shek and they hadn't fled to Taiwan, they sort of ended up in China, probably also would have ended up with something like this, or the country would have split into pieces. It's just, you can't rule this country really without an iron hand. I mean, that's how it worked. Like the, the most easily governable, governable, you know, part of China, the core Chinese territories, a region originally called the North China Plain, and it required an empire just to unite the different pieces of that. And then you had to have an empire mm. to unite every other single larger piece that tried to put together. So every time China grew larger, it was actually growing more and more unmanageable. And the Qing dynasty, which was the last dynasty, it reached the, the large, crazy extent that it, the largest, basically, extent that a Chinese state ever reached. And the, basically, the second it got that big, it was like destined to disintegrate. And it did. So like when in 1911, the Chinese state just basically, it was called the Xinhai Revolution, but it was really a devolution where the whole state just split like... Every every region just spun off into its own orbit, and there's just warlords yep. everywhere. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what happens in China. So basically, if you don't have like an iron fist, the iron hand at the top, you end up with warlords everywhere and giant war and violence and chaos. And so this is one of the things I try and tell you know my, my audience and people who I'm talking to is just China is one of those places. You know, when the U.S. went into Iraq in 2003, we said we're bringing liberty and democracy. It's like, okay, this this has been this Iraq's been a pretty mean place for like. I don't know, 5,000 years. I don't know if the liberal democracy was on the way. I don't think we're the ones to, to bring it. And so what, yeah. some, of, some of what really got me into China was back at that time, I remember thinking, hey, like China's this giant country growing. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. What would happen in a conflict? What would happen if we were, you know, what is going to happen to a country like China? Like if, if we get into a conflict, what's our level of sophistication when we think about this country? Like our 
government was like, hey, you know, Iraq, who cares about the the massive ethnic, sectarian, religious, uh, spiritual conflicts in this, you know, in this region? Let's just, you know, go in and we'll, you know, replace the top of the guy at the top, replace it with something that works. And that doesn't happen. And I think China is one of those places that its whole history is just trying to make something work. Like the idea, like the US mm. motto is like, you know, out of many, one. China's motto is like, you know, they'd love that motto. <laughs> That's their goal, but it, it's really hard to do. Yeah, it's that's a good way to put it with Iraq. It's um, not to get too far off tangent. I remember uh, when I was in high school and we invaded Iraq, we had a, a speaker come to our school and, and talk. And uh, I think it was a year or two after we invaded Iraq. And his whole position was we should have never toppled Saddam Hussein. And he basically said what you said, which is this country in this region has been ruled like this for thousands of years. Us coming in and toppling it is not going to change anything like that's just the way this region is um so i guess to sum it up it, it, it china is definitely you can't compare they're like apples and oranges they may be even like it sounds like they may be even like apples and lug nuts when you try and compare like china to like a cuba in the sense of what is their model of government yeah china i think it's a good point like with the like the Iraq example, you know, they had the bath party there and, you know, you toppled the the military, you sort of just disbanded the military and the, you know, the political figures and the whole political system sort of broke and you had to replace it. Uh, it's tough for countries like Iraq or Iran or Russia. You need a strong state to keep things together. And there's always a tension. We, we obviously want better humanitarian moral outcomes in a lot of these countries. We want them to have better food, water, electricity, human rights, all this stuff. But there's a real challenge. I mean, a lot of this, ultimately, a lot of this that stems from the, from the geography of these regions for the same reason that a place like the Sahara Desert doesn't have, you know, major civilizations, you know, the, 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 the Arctic and Siberia don't have large population centers. There's certain structures that emerge in different regions that, that you need certain governance structures. And that's a huge thing. And China, one of its problems is it has so many different types of regions that are all so different. That it's been for you know 2200 years it's been in a really 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 like it's been going it's been playing the imperialist game very hard for a very mm. long time you know it's been it's been doing it really hard and it hasn't fully succeeded so it's just a, to give a sense of the scale of the problem it's it's something that goes really deep and for you know for people i think that that's a one thing that's sort of lost in our current debates we sort of are always debating at the level of you know politics and policy and ideology which is very important but we do need to remember more of the of the ground layer of where you know how these things emerged, why they emerge, and if we want to change them, we really have to see. We have to we have to we have to be able to dig pretty deep to see why they got there in the first place. It's it's tough stuff. I hope that wasn't too abstract, but I don't want to get too far afield talking about sort of the, the sort of the nuts and bolts of a country like China or comparing it to Russia or something. But it's very important. It's something yeah. that's lost in our in our political talk these days. Yeah, because I think that a lot of people just hear communists and they just automatically think of Cuba or Venezuela and they just say, oh, they're all the same. But I think it's important to understand the context of where China is coming from yeah. um, and, you know, circling back to why they are investing in places like California and downtown L.A. Uh, so real estate is a big part, but they've kind of been limited with their laws. What are some other industries that they that the Chinese are investing in or that are putting their money in? One place, I, I mean, I have a hunch that maybe 
cannabis and cannabis farms and dispensaries, maybe one spot. Um, that's just me. I work uh, as an attorney. I've worked with cannabis investors and they all are Chinese and they have tons of money to burn and they don't care that you tell them it's going to cost $3 million to start a dispensary. And they say, no problem, whatever we, we got the money. Um, so that's one area that I believe, what are some other areas in California that they are investing in? Well, that's actually a really good one. So agriculture in general, a lot of American agriculture is bizarrely highly in our, from our perspective, it seems kind of bizarrely well-regarded, but mm -hmm. it, you know, the central Valley in California, a lot of agriculture there is, you know, the land, the, the output is, is pursued. Um, I think also a very big, China is one of its biggest roles in the, in the American, I mean, the California, the, the California economy is, it relates to its overall sort of role with America. And that's really the port of LA and, and Long Beach. I mean, it's the largest port mm -hmm. complex in the United States and an enormous amount of East Asian trade comes through here. And so right now we have this massive backlog of like dozens of ships that are just waiting. It's, there's a whole backlog, the whole coronavirus supply chain disruption has really messed up these, uh, the whole process there. And we're actually starting to see it's gotten so bad that we're probably going to see a lot of reshoring and industrial movement just because there's not enough capacity at the ports for what's going on. And this is, looks like it's going to last into 2023 even. So mm -hmm. this is, you know, Oh, six months, you know, three months. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll be okay. And we'll just change it up. But when you get to two or three years, you're thinking, okay, I think we need to, to make a change. And one of the things you see on the West coast is that it, or a lot of it really is this port LA and Long Beach. It's there's it's huge. The, Oakland is much smaller, and then obviously the, the Seattle doesn't really hit the the large market. Doesn't move quite as easily across the country. The yeah, so that that's a that's a really big one. Uh, and just like you said, there's agriculture, there's real estate, there's port logistics, and a lot of real estate also is the the warehousing and all of that. That's actually still a very hot area. Just in general, with all the all the Amazon purchases, the a lot of stuff that may be moving, a lot of investment that may be moved from commercial real estate is definitely moving into the more industrial warehousing logistics side of the market. And that's part of it. In the same way that a lot of old malls might be becoming uh, housing apartments and condos and stuff like that, they're being converted. So you have those. Um, obviously tech as well, but now there's a huge, uh, yeah, th there's a lot more state and federal control, particularly federal controls of tech investment. So that's been also tamped down. But th those are the major ones. And I think that that is one of, one of the really major areas. The, 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 the logistics and the, the port activity is a huge part of the employment base, particularly in Southern California, which has a bit of a different structure than, than the Bay Area. And you know, should there be a major, a major conflict or problem with China or just shifts in trade, it would really negatively impact Los Angeles for sure. Okay. Um, I had a thought that was on the top of my head and I, it, it just lost me. Um, yeah, I, I'd watched the video about how sort of COVID has really impacted the, the, the ports. And, um, now we're having issues with, you know, it's just supply chains have absolutely broken down from ships couldn't get in. We weren't unloading them fast enough. Now we don't have enough truck drivers to bring the containers back, which now have to go back to China, which now need to come back here. So, uh, and you're saying it, it probably won't be resolved for a couple more years. Yeah. It's like, it was looking like it would be going into 20, the middle of 2022, but a lot of these backlogs, there's a lot of sort of permanent shifts. We're seeing a lot of, a lot more purchases from home, 
We're seeing all these, a lot of the consumer goods that were backlogged are getting pushed forward. And there's a finite, for, for example, there's maybe six, about, there's around 6,000 uh, containers around the world. I mean, mm -hmm. sorry, excuse me, con container ships. And there's a set number of containers on them. And you sort of, the way maritime logistics works, you have these, you have a ship and it has a bunch of stack containers on it. And you sort of move along in this big circle and you sort of take off the ones at the top or going to the, the port at the top. You sort of pull off all of the, the different, the cargo as you go along and you just keep going in circles and, or change your route or whatever. And you're, we're seeing just problems at every level of this supply chain. So something like a pro, a lot of what China actually does, a lot of its manufacturing is really assembly. So it's assembling mm -hmm. a product with pieces from all over. So, for example, I'm looking to buy, uh, I'm looking to get a new end cap for the top of my car, which is basically for the, the roof rack of my car. The end cap fell off, the thing you put like a surfboard to. And it's, it's going to come, I think, in a month or two. I've been waiting maybe three months for a little piece of plastic. And mm -hmm. people are seeing like that, things like that for everything. And there were already a lot of, forces that were pushing away from Chinese manufacturing and towards more of an American centric uh, system. So obviously there was, there was tariffs, direct federal involvement, but there's also changes, for example, in the Chinese labor market. There's been a huge a rise in prices and wages in China. There's also a rise, in, a rise in energy prices and there's all these input costs that are going up. And it's, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been impacting a lot of industrial decisions for maybe the last four or five years, but it really accelerated in the last two years. People were originally looking at Vietnam and all these things we heard about, oh, the tariffs, they're just going to move to Vietnam, which is true, or Malaysia, which is true. But now things are things are really shifting. And the sort of the global world we're entering, there's a lot more, there's a lot less consumption generally. And so a mm -hmm. large market like the United States is starting to gather more and more of, of, the, of the production. So for example, a company like Tesla, which is pretty hot and you know, obviously it was the biggest store stock story of last year the tesla's production strategy is basically to per like buy or create its products where they're sold so it has a factory in china it has a factory in it's building a factory in europe and it's building you know a new factory in the us too and that is really the sort of model that we're that things are moving to in general the system we had it was built starting in the 80s of you have all these interchangeable uh cargo units they can go all around the world and you can basically arbitrage the lowest production cost the lowest regulatory environment, the lowest tax burden everywhere all around the world for every single little part. And that's great until the supply chains crack. And then that one part that you need is what stops you. And if you don't have that one part, you can't build a bicycle. You can't do anything. You can't build anything. So it, it's it's changed everything. And we're seeing major strategic problems too. So at like a national level, the US has started doing industrial policy basically for the first time in a very long time. And I think for more conservative listeners, the worry is always, what is the US doing? You know, picking winners, picking losers, doing this, doing that. And that's that's very much true. But we saw this under under Trump, and now we're seeing even more of it under Biden. And almost certainly we'd see even more of it under whoever a, a next conservative president or Republican president would be. It's just, it's sort of a, a general change in the, the way things are done. It's sort of a reaction to the, basically the way that China massively sort of monopolized the a lot of the gains the industrial and production gains of the last 30 or so years so that's definitely something to keep an eye on wow um so we've talked about the economy and industries does china have any other influence in specific parts of california outside of the economy or industries um that you're aware of or anything uh, just outside the realm of that 
Yeah, I'd say, I mean, China's been very involved in California politics and politicians. It's, it's, you know, it had its, it's had dealings in its hand with a lot of the Democratic politicians. I mean, obviously, mostly almost all Democratic politicians throughout the state. That's pretty well known. Uh, the, the thing is, it's just become so toxic now that a lot of things are hmm. going underground and they're going through intermediaries. So that's kind of what's happening. So it's, there's a bit more layers, a bit more removed from things, I guess you could say. It's hard to sort of get a read on, oh, who's talking to China? Who's doing X? Who's doing Y? So if they are receiving money, it's a bit, it's a bit farther down the field. So that's one thing sort of on the political side of things. And then let me think of some other areas. I mean, the, the main one I really wanted to get you know, sort of talk about with people was the, the real estate one, because it's such a good example of the, the broader cycle that we're seeing. But what we're seeing in general with China, just sort of to get back to where we started, is that this that phase from like 2008, 2015, 16, that came to an end. And China's been tightening up in general all around or, on all sorts of industries, on all sorts of capital is imposing these capital controls. And that that applies to businesses. So businesses can no longer buy like trophy assets all over the world. Uh, it doesn't really it doesn't really sell. So that Originally, that, that company, Onbog Insurance, that bought the Waldorf Astoria in New York, that company, well, it was, first of all, put under state conservatorship, so it basically became a state company, and then they were forced to forced to sell it or whatever. So that's that's kind of a good story, like, so where that, that cycle ended. But yeah, China is really interested now in acquiring uh, advanced technologies that are going to move it up the value chain. And it wants, so it wants access to basically all of the, the high-tech Silicon Valley sort of companies in the U.S., but it's just, it's very hard for them to do that in this environment. I think there are a lot that are. There's a lot of people that are, a lot of companies that are, for example, in a lot of uh, the sort of self-driving car AI research. There's just a lot of international collaboration in general, but there's also collaboration with major Chinese companies like like Baidu and you know Tencent and others. And these, because these are the sort of an international community of computer science researchers, practitioners that are involved in it. But again, it's it's a major area. It's a major problem area. And right now, China actually just passed a, a data secure, basically a data security law, where China is now treating data like labor, land and capital, and as something that the state is basically a state asset. So foreign companies cannot use Chinese data, they can't sort of take Chinese citizen data, Chinese data acquired in China out of the country for, for whatever the purposes are. So it sort of wants they want to sort of inbuilt, get an inbuilt advantage with their own large population, they can run large neural nets on do a lot of you know, improve all their algorithms for you know, computer vision or sort of you know face detection or you know gate analysis all, all these mm -hmm. different things that's kind of what they're going for so it is definitely the lines are definitely splitting uh but i think we'll see yeah i think the real estate the agriculture like you said i mean cannabis included uh those are those are big those are probably the, the main ones though i think that the what's happening in the us just as a, a general thing is that the millennial age group is sort of now hit 32. So that is pushing, you know, 32 is typically the age when people move out of the er expensive urban areas that they lived in, and they move to suburbs, and they start families and they buy homes, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So the entire millennial generation is sort of reaching that point, the middle of the generation. And so that's part of why we see these crazy, this continued crazy rise in house prices all over the country, not just in the urban areas, right anymore. We see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. People fled because of COVID. And so that's happening at the same time. And that's sort of keeping a lot of these things going, even as you know the Chinese aspect is is pulling back. But what this you know, the, the you know the the proper aging of this millennial group also means is that the the Gen Z, the, the next generation, is much smaller. So, like you were talking about, the people at 
you know, you can't, they can't, they, they can't unload these things. There's not enough workers, not enough people. A lot of people are, they're getting money from the government and they're not going back to a lot of these jobs. And there's also a lot of low skill jobs that simply won't come back at all. And this is really big for California because there's a, a huge, something like 80% of the jobs built since 2008, uh, built uh, jobs created since 2008 pay less than, you know, the, the federal medium, median wage. So there is something where it's heavily co consolidated in, re, you know, retail, hospitality, leisure, things like that, travel. And a lot of these jobs just may not come back because there isn't going to be as, as many Gen Z sort of people as there are millennials. So you just won't be able to fill these positions. So in the US, we had a larger population, a larger millennial population. So you could actually keep these roles. There's a lot of things in Italy even, or in European countries that are simply automated away that are now going to be automated away, kind of like people have been talking about. We've been expecting a lot of automation to occur. And we were sort of, we got, we kind of got ahead of ourselves, but it's definitely going to come now as we see a lot of these jobs that we're expecting to just fill back up at, from COVID. A lot of companies have already decided to, to move the, a lot of positions to being as automated as possible. So that, that's also mm -hmm. a major thing that, that's, that's occurring right now. And it's, it definitely you know, inflects with the, the China problem because a lot of this is being driven by data and by technology. And that's a major thing. I mean, another really cool area you might, not cool area, but it's an important area is China's really on the vanguard of the regulation of a lot of these data monopolies, major internet platforms, major tech platforms. And the, the style of regulation that they use is going to be highly influential for countries around the world. It's also going to be a real sort of reference point for US debates about what we should do. So it's, mm. it's important to keep, you know, keep that in mind because these, they're sort of dealing with many of the same things we are, except they have an authoritarian, totalitarian, murderous government that could sort of lay down the law. And we can't do that, but it's going to be, it's going to be theirs as well, and a sort of terrible option in a lot of ways. So uh, I'll, I have one more question that I think would be a good question to end on. But just as a side note, if you, anybody has any questions for Jason, uh, post them in the chat and certainly ask them. Um, because I feel like there's so much we could talk about. We could turn this into like a four hour podcast. Uh, so in your opinion, this may be a real loaded question. This may be tough to answer, uh, but I'm considering you the expert and you know a lot about this. Is the China and what it does in California, is that a net positive or is it a net neutral or what's your view on China in California? Um, are there good things about what they're what what they're doing here? Are there bad things that we as Californians should kind of say? Okay, that's that's too much. Like we should push back on it. Um, what's the state of China and California, and where are we going from here? Hmm. Well, I think the the starting point was that California had a love affair with China, right? They mm -hmm. the, the state really did. And I think there's a bit of a there should there's a necessary blowback to that sort of that love, and yeah, the question about is it net is it net good or net bad? I'd say overall, I'd say to be honest, I'd say from 2008 to maybe 2015 when the, the money was really flowing in, uh, I think that there mm -hmm. were there were benefits to for a lot of things. I think that what happened is that you sort of unbalance so many markets, and particularly the housing affordability, the real estate market, which has just caused so many problems. It's really been wrapped up in all of the problems of the homeless population, housing affordability. It really exacerbated a lot of these. And 
it just prevented the state government in particular from focusing on the ways that it can fix things. So I firmly mm. believe that the major problems in California are not, they don't come from China. And I think the state has had the ability, has had and has the ability to fix all of the China problems in specific that, that, that are there. There's some, there's some tech things. There's, you could do foreign purchase taxes if you want. Uh, but the real thing is to, you could, I, if the state performed better, the state could make things so much better that even if China was doing more than it was doing now, it would, it wouldn't impact the bottom line too bad. Do you know what I mean? Like we're doing, we're no. functioning so poorly as, as sort of a, on the, there's really no state direction in a, in a positive direction. It's just hoping that Silicon Valley saves the world, saves everything, saves the budget, et cetera. And then sort of a lot of ideology and platitude. The, you really need a much broader sort of vision, but it's very, very difficult to find. It's not just a California problem. It's a problem for all of these states. I mean, any politician who gets any sort of not not notoriety, vis vis visibility, they just immediately want to become president or something. So they don't actually invest too much actually fixing anything. And things have just become so cultural and ideological that it's it's very mm -hmm. hard to see the state moving, sort of moving forward with things. But I think that I mean, the thing people should realize is that a lot of the, the way things will probably move is just through events, like the way we saw with the COVID and the pandemic, like things changed rapidly. Telecommuting became a thing. <laughs> Telemedicine became a thing. Instacart became a thing for, for groceries. That's a that's going to be the way things move forward. We don't have enough, to be honest, state capacity to really move things. And China was taking advantage of that for a long time. So another way to look at it is that the China's success in California was very much a function of how incompetent a lot of the state was in sort of directing the state to its own sort of better place, better end. And the, the second there was a spotlight shine on that and said, hey, like, look at all these connections between California or Pelosi or whatever and China. Then the state sort of got skittish and, and whatever, but it just didn't have the actual internal direction and vision and capacity to, to do anything. And that's still the main problem. But overall, I think that at this point, I mean, at this point, the the unless it's clearly, clearly dubious state directed tech investment or something where it's like, hey, China's coming to blatantly and clearly and obviously steal some technology or something like that. You know, people want to invest in cannabis or certain assets. I mean, that isn't the biggest deal in the world, but I think it will oh. get wrapped up in this broader China US conflict, you know, both real, both real and sort of more narrative conflict. So people should just expect everything to be taking really far out of proportion. Like we'll probably see more stories now about how China's super big in X, Y, Z when that is, that was the story maybe eight years, six, eight years ago. So there's yeah. always these lag times and there's often no context for where things began, where they moved to, where things started, where they may be going. So people could just get wrapped up in the moment. But, and I think we talked really about where, where things came from and it should give people a good sense for what's happening. I mean, just in general, there's a there's a major split. There's a major, you know, decoupling split, whatever you want to call it, happening with the U.S. and China. And China's really concerned with major internal stability and regional issues there. So it really doesn't have doesn't have the fight. It's just you know, it wants the technology to transform its society. If it can find them in California, it's going to try and get them. Um, yeah. But in a lot of ways, this is no different from the, the French or the Israelis or all sorts of people who do all sorts of industrial espionage and stuff all around the world. So that's that's not super new. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think that we might also see a lot more. There might be a lot less cooperation and more just overt cyber attacks, like we're starting to see this mm. year as well. Though, when you can't get things through cooperation, 
you know, maybe you go and, you know, try, try through uh, more rough sorts of means. And that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But yeah, overall, overall, it, it had a good, a few good years, probably benefited, you know, some people It exposed people to new, new ideas, new ways of being new, new, all that. That's good. But uh, it's been a net, you know, a net negative for a while now. And it just detracts from this state and this country's why, you know, more widely ability to just kind of define its own vision and start moving forward on it. That's I, I never thought of that. Um, that's an excellent point that just like light bulb in my head is that it's not really, everyone kind of always thinks it's like China being this like imperialistic country of like, we, we have to take over the U S and like, we're going to do it by it. And when you look at it at a sense of like, well, California state and because it's state politics have been so lackluster without a direction for so long, China saw an opportunity and yeah. that's really the fault of us as Californians, not focusing on our local politicians. And you made a great point that as soon as somebody gets any sort of notoriety, everyone goes, Oh boy, they're going to run for president in 2024. They're going to run for president, you know, 2030. It's almost immediately. It's the next question. And I always try and tell my listeners and followers, you know, you want things to get better in California. Stop worrying about like, who's president, like, and start worrying about who's your state assemblyman or your state senator, because that goes a long way. Um, so that that's a diff- completely different angle. And, you, you know, just light bulb in my head. So I feel like I, I just saw a brand new perspective. Oh, that's, that's I'm, I'm glad that was a little a good light bulb. Uh, it's just an, always an interesting thing to remember about China is that China isn't has always been an empire not to like take over the rest of the world. It's just to rule itself. Right? We think of yeah. empires as like, the British Empire became an empire to like take over a quarter of the world, right? Or yeah. Soviet Union functionally an empire to take over Europe, etc. China really from the beginning, the empire is to keep itself together. You know, it's the it's yeah, it's it's the the structure it needs to rule itself. And so when it's, you know, when it's investing and in getting dipping its toes into Africa and all these things, it's really doing it often because of weakness or some, you know, leverage, you know, immediate leverage it has. And yeah, that, that's really how it works kind of all around the world. Um, it can try mm-hmm. all sorts of things, but it's, uh, you know, that, that'd be a whole other topic about sort of China moving out more broadly into the world. But the, the way that it happened in California is pretty, pretty characteristic. Um, California is obviously very developed. So you don't just like roll into a poor African country and like, you know, take over a little corner of it, basically, and do all this neo-colonial stuff. But the principle is, is pretty similar. And if we don't, if you don't have the direction, it's kind of like anybody in, in our own personal lives. Like if we don't know where we're going or what to do and people can sort of sense that and sort of get you to do a little bit of this and help me out with that. And I need a little bit of this. It's, I mean, it's not yeah. terrible, but you know, maybe we could kind of find out what we're about. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. We could do a little go. bit better job of protecting <laughs> like, you know, like our stuff here and not just letting everybody else come and take our stuff. Uh, so I think uh, we're about 50 minutes in uh is there anything you'd like to add where people can find more about you? I know you said you had a book coming out. Um, so, you know, plug yeah. away yeah, on what's sure. coming up for you. Sure. Uh, I guess the best way to probably reach me is I started using Twitter. You can find me there. It's at Jason Deftel. So last name is S, you know, Jason, then last name S-Z-E-F-T-E-L. That's kind of where the best place to find me or contact me. Uh, you can check out the website. There's some essays there. There's some articles. There's, then there's, of course, the podcast, which is sort of being re reimagined right now to sort of make it uh, more accessible and sort of get it more out more mm-hmm. often. There's also a YouTube page where I'm sort of doing some live, you know, some occasional live streams and people are trying to ask me questions. I might start doing some more Q and a sort of stuff there. And then 
yeah, I think there's a there's a book that I've been working on for a while that'll come out. Uh, it's not really here so, totally to plug it, but you know, it'll also probably be called China Unraveled, and it'll hope hopefully it's you know the purpose of it is to give people a sense of of China and the different regions of China, kind of like you we have in the U.S. Right. So in the U.S. there's Appalachia and there's the West Coast and there's the mountain region and there's you know the South and there's Texas and there's New England. And when you could start getting a sense of China like that, I mean, it, first of all, it's really helpful because there's regions in China that are more populous than any country in Europe. So it's just probably a smart way to go. But it also gives you a sense of really what's going on. It'll give people a sense of where things are probably going if things don't, as they probably want to do, just start to break down a bit in China. It'll give you a sense of what's actually happening there. And yeah, that, that's the that's the most of it. Um, yeah, and there's also I'm doing a bit of a newsletter, but I'll just I'll just leave it at that. Just check out check me out on Twitter is the place to find me. Awesome. Well, I feel like I learned a lot and I think a lot of my listeners will learn a lot. And like I said, I think we could talk about more of this stuff for like another two or three hours. Um, so would you like to ever come back is my question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it'd be really fun. Uh, I think it would be really cool. There's uh, kind of the way I work is I spent a lot of years building like a, a comp, kind of, I don't want to say a comp, like a bit of a comprehensive look at China. And I basically go and I talk about different s- sectors. So I have a an, art, an article coming out about China's energy sector. I've written about its agriculture system, you know, military stuff, real estate, all of these these different things. And I really enjoyed coming in here just talking about California because it's, it's my home and I know a lot about things mm-hmm. in the state and how it relates. So that was very fun. But yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about and we could talk about really whatever whatever you're interested in. I really enjoyed it. So I'd love to come back on. Great. Uh, cool. So uh We'll have you back on then. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, for everybody else who was tuning in, thank you for tuning in as always. Uh, new schedule every Thursday at a.m. streaming live on YouTube, and then you can find the audio podcast anywhere on Spotify, Google, Apple, all those places. Uh, make sure to subscribe, like, share, review, all that uh, that jargon. And thanks again. I'll see you on the next one. listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it, and follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 